All right, we're in business. I'm back here in plenary session, real life edition. I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Goodman, Papa Heem. He's associate professor here at the University of California, San Diego. We've just spent half the day together since uh, lecture this afternoon. Aaron, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you in the San Diego edition. I'm loving it. It's a little bit warmer than the San Francisco edition. A yes, few degrees. A few degrees. It's in the mid-80s here, which uh, <laughs> by San Diego standards is like hell. It's very hot here. Everyone's been apologizing <laughs> yeah. for we, the heat wave. We're quite wimps here. If it's not between 65 and 70 and perfectly sunny, uh, other extremes are just too much for us. So, <laughs> Well, it's been, it's been a delight to talk to your group in the heme malignancy branch, but we had a lot of people turn out for this lecture. Solid tumor people, classical hematologists. They all came out of the woodwork. Yeah, clinical trial coordinators, residents, fellows. Yeah, I, I was I was a little nervous when I was hosting uh, Dr. Prasad. I, you know, I, I didn't know if we a lot of people would come. You know, there'd be some COVID hate from some of those things. <laughs> COVID <but> I, hate. <laughs> you know, so when I sent out the email invite, I was waiting uh, for. They came I was for, the, for the they hate. Came, they came for the free pizza. Aaron. Yeah, they, I have. did spend of my own research funds, but it is for you know the research funds allow it because they were learning how to conduct better research, so it was within use of of the funds. So. It's an appropriate use. You know what else yep. is an appropriate use to use your research funds to pay for a medical writer for a cooperative group study? Yeah. That's <laughs> like determination. That's another appropriate yeah. use. That's why I only bought pizza and not some fine dining food because I'm saving the rest of the funds for my all my publications that I don't have to write. Oh yeah, so you got to get the writer to do it for you. So, Aaron, people have heard you on this podcast before, but I don't think we've talked face-to-face, -face, and there's always a different conversation face-to-face. -face. I thought, you know, we could run through a few things. And, uh, and then finally, like, uh, one a bit about more about your background, and then finally come to talk about, you know, some of your treatment algorithms. We've been talking a little bit about your treatment algorithms because you're on service right now. I am, and it's and as, as I was talking to you, as I was talking to you earlier, yeah. uh, um, the service sometimes. So I'm a bone marrow transplant doctor, and we do uh, part of the reason why I love my job is we do a lot of inpatient. I like inpatient medicine; it's fast paced, and um, sometimes you know the list is you know we all have our inpatient service, and sometimes it's easier, and sometimes it's a little bit harder. Uh, and when I say easy, sometimes it's just, you know, admissions for their transplant and there's, a, you know, it's algorithmic and they do well. This particular list is uh, right now, uh, it's been a doozy. Uh, let's just say I was up all night last night uh, dealing with pages from the ER, plenty new diagnoses and some challenging cases going on right now. Let me ask you this. What's your census usually run? So, you know, I, on our, uh, our general census is usually 15 to 17. Uh, it's over 20 right now. I will say... Five years ago, when I started, we used to just have one inpatient uh, BMT attending, and uh, the it would literally be 30 to 40 patients. I still remember my first day rounding on 39 patients it's almost, it's almost <laughs> on a weekend safe. with yeah. one nurse practitioner. Uh, we've changed this world. UCSD is a safe place. Don't worry. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, we've changed. We now have two uh, inpatient attendings. It's just, you know, we've gotten busier and busier. We're doing more inpatient medicine with all the cellular therapies, with the bispecifics. So uh, it's a good time to be in business in BMT. It's good, and uh, it's good that you've you've gotten it very safe. That's what gets you that number one in San Diego rank. I see the big sign okay, in front. Yes, we are number one <laughs> in San Diego. Yes, in San Diego, <laughs> I believe number five in California. Uh, we're no UCSF yet, but uh, it's a much uh, nicer place to live here in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's no argument there. So let me ask you this, okay, about your census. So your team is, uh, uh, is it mid-level run? How, uh, yeah. Or, yeah, a resident run. So, I, so I've now done BMT to a few different places, yeah. and it's, 
It's actually different in every different place. And I will say our, our, our team consists of an attending physician. We usually have one fellow, a, a general hematology oncology fellow on service almost all months. Uh, and then we have uh, during the week, uh, usually two nurse practitioners, sometimes three nurse practitioners with the team. And we actually lately have been having a medical student uh, and or resident or both. So, and we have a pharmacist. So it's well, really a, it's a vital. team sport and uh, I, I love it. We walk down the hall uh, and it's like a whole clan of us uh, uh, from different stages of training and not all physicians. And uh, I am the first to say this. Sometimes I would say every year or so we'll see a thing on Twitter where like nurse practitioners are taking over our jobs as physicians. And um, we could not do our job in bone marrow transplant without our uh, BMT nurse practitioners. They're awesome. They're smart and they're very skilled and they learn how to, to really think and, and do our job. We couldn't do it without them. Absolutely. So a plug uh, for the MPs. Yes. And uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've attended uh, on bone marrow transplant uh, in a couple of places and I've been on the service at even more hospitals. At NIH, it was um, a combination of mid-level and fellow run. So the fellow and the mid-levels kind of split the census and there was an attending overseeing. Um, NIH has actually, they had two bone marrow transplant programs, two ALO programs. They had an NCI ALO, ALO program, and they had an NHLBI, the hematology program. Uh, in Oregon, we had uh, three different services. One would mostly do the autos, one would mostly do the ALOs, and one would mostly do uh, acute leukemics. And those were 100% mid-level run, NP and PA. Um, and, uh, but, you know, to be honest, our censuses would float around 20, maybe up to 25. And sometimes... We had uncovered patients, meaning the only thing between you and that patient was the pager, that there was no NP on that patient. And that was really tough, I think, as an attending, because you're trying to manage other people, and also you're getting directly paged to, you know, change a Benadryl order or something like yes. that. I am not paged about hypokalemia anymore. That would... Uh, That's an order that, set. Yes. It's an order set or any of those things. You know, I wouldn't be able to do uh, what I what I do. Uh, so we, we fortunately have good support here at UCSD. BMT has changed a lot over the last few years. I mean, CAR-T wasn't there probably when you started as an attending. Where Did you have CAR-T that first year? So we were... Uh, when I started, and it might have been even when I was a fellow, we were part of the initial Zuma 1 study, a little plug with the one in New England Journal of Medicine. We, we were a center for that study. So I distinctly remember enrolling uh, as a fellow, taking care of those patients. But um, really over the last two years, like I think at all of the centers, it is dramatically picked up. Uh, we always have a few CAR-Ts going. And now with the myeloma CAR-Ts, if you can get your hands on them, Let's uh, talk about that. Uh, yeah. uh, we have those on service right now. Actually, we have two. So what are you giving, Idacel or Siltacel? So um, we are still giving Idacel. Uh, our uh, individual program is not yet up and running for Siltacel. It's not, they don't, you know, for starting a CAR-T for a given product, you have to get you know, all the, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a transplant, all the whole formula in place with the company, the infrastructure, the cellular processing. And so it's not an easy task. So we are not yet up and going with Siltacel. We will be soon. Uh, um, and uh, I think like most people who do cellular therapy, that seems to be the preferred product, uh, at least if you compare the phase twos, which is all we can do at this, this yeah, time. Cross trial. Uh, the, the, uh, one the, has a much longer PFS. One than has the other. a much longer PFS. And, and, and actually interesting, they have different toxicity profiles, uh, the uh, with with Ida cell, um, the CRS typically occurs within 24 to 48 hours, uh, while with Silta cell, the CRS occurs more like six to seven days, and the cell do the cell doses are different, and that actually has implications. You could probably do Silta cell outpatient, uh, and then you know on day six or seven they might have to come in. While Ida cell, they're all generally admitted. You alluded to something, which is that uh, it's hard to get your hands on it. We have uh, wait lists at every hospital I'm aware of. 
Um, we have um, people trying to clamor for the wait list. There are even calls for people to say, if you want one of these products, you should get put on the wait list when you don't even have progression, just so you'll have your turn. Meanwhile, did you know the company is making a lot of the product, but you know where they're putting the product? They're putting it in their clinical trials operations, which are not going to relapse refractory patients. You know, they have clinical trials that are trying to move it up front in lieu of auto as a consolidation for auto. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't heard yet. I can't think of off the top of my head a, a upfront study in myeloma. But you see the challenge here, which is that we have a scarce medical resource that's really important as a salvage therapy. And the company is saving so many slots and products to move it up in clinical trials, which means that there are some people now who will die without getting these products so that somebody with early stage disease can get it on trial. Yeah, and again, this is me, you know, I'm thankful for the, the, the manufacturer of this, the pharmaceutical, this is a good, these car T's are good, um, um, but it, it is a, a scarce resource. So uh, patients, I mean, they have, they are dying uh, waiting for this product. I can say that for sure. Cause yeah, I have for sure. Um, and is it ethically right that they should be studying it in more upfront and right? Less yes. needy patients. Yes, less needy. Uh, yeah. uh, that, you know, are, I mean, the patients that are needing it now are literally, cause you need to have five lines of therapy. Correct. And, and, and I will say uh, again, when you, you know, they have to have five lines of therapy, then they need to see a cellular therapy doctor like myself to say, yeah, this is indicated they're fit and, and they go through it. And then it's still a two to three month manufacturing process. Correct. And the slots are very hard to get. They literally, uh, I can share how we do it. We get one or two slots a month if we are lucky. And we literally have a panel uh, where we sit as a group and we go over who is the most needy. And it's a hard thing to do because it's not one doctor taking care of all these patients. It's many of us physicians and we want our patients, you know, we want to fight for our patients. So that adds an extra uh, stressful layer. And furthermore, you know, you bring them in to collect and if something goes wrong with the collection, which can easily happen, right. uh, maybe there's a miscommunication with the timing, they got to drive a few hours or whatever, you screw that up, you they can lose the slot. So they the patient could be the promised slot. a slot. And, you know, I, I think that's bad, but you know, at least, we're giving some of the patients it, but you know, it's been difficult and I'm eagerly waiting till, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about it. We've never had these problems with the lymphoma CAR T's. There's plenty of those to give around. Um, I suspect, you know, there's just greater demand for myeloma because there's more myeloma. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and lymphoma, a lot of the people are cured and myeloma, nobody's cured, despite what uh, the uh, pundits say every time they have a myeloma meeting, they keep talking about cure. The only place cure exists is in their publications. It doesn't <laughs> exist in the real world. But you know, I, I gotta admit, if I were a patient with multiple myeloma and I had pentarefractory and progressed in all these therapies and I knew I couldn't get a spot and I was gonna die, meanwhile, somebody who had never seen Dara, never seen Palm, never seen Kyprolis was getting it on a trial, I would be pissed at the company. And there's so many medical ethicists out there they're really busy working on you know some occasionally important papers I, w I think one of them should talk about how do you budget a scarce resource in this situation where the person who is getting it on trial you know in, in lieu of auto in some trials right it's done instead of auto or as post auto that that person really shouldn't be getting it that trial should be suspended until their manufacturing capability goes up I mean that's the ethical question I, I agree and let's be honest the people getting it on trial these are our least usually to be on trial yeah. there's many barriers to be on clinical trials and uh, including financial transportation um, and usually these are probably the least needy uh, patients for uh, up front and um, no I don't know yeah I would be freaking 
won't swear. I'd be very pissed off too if, if I was dying of myeloma and a newly diagnosed patient was getting it to prolong their PFS in a clinical trial. To prolong yeah. their PFS. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, maybe who knows where they go next? They go right to MGUS. I don't know where. They, I don't know what they're capable of these days. As you said once, it's a time to developing MGUS. Time to, yes, right. Healthy people, and let's delay the time. To, of course, to MGUS. you give yes. Revlimid to everybody. Yes, in fact, yes. probably you just put in the tap water, and then you, the primary endpoint would be time to MGUS. Yes. That's the gold standard. Yes, versus time to developing uh, acute leukemia from the Revlimid. <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't count. Treatment-related events, they don't count. Now, let's talk about teclistamab. I see people saying that, um, you know, it might possibly, rarely be linked to possibly infection. What are your thoughts? Is it possibly linked to infection? Yeah, I heard it, you know, one of the numerous myeloma meetings. I think they're like Q Weekly. Yeah, the, of course. They need it every week. Yeah, the Q Weekly myeloma meetings. I love you, myeloma investigators. Um <laughs> there, there was a, 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 a pivotal debate, a riveting debate about whether uh, teclistamab, uh, which for those who don't know in the audience, is a bispecific uh, antibody, which basically two, fuses two antibodies. So there's two FC regions that bind different antigens. In the case of teclistamab, it's CD19 and BCMA. Uh, it could somehow be linked to an increased risk of infections. Uh, keep in mind, BCMA is on bad plasma cells, myeloma, and also on the good plasma cells. Is it CD19 BCMA or CD3 BCMA? No, it's, 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 excuse me, you are correct. Yeah. I, uh, is too smart for me. I, I misspoke. It's a CD3 to BCMA. So CD3 on the T cell uh, and then BCMA on the plasma cell. You're thinking so of Blino. Yes, it redirects the T cell to the plasma cell to kill it. And it's very good at killing it. The, the efficacy is good, but it kills a lot of normal plasma cells. And there is clearly an increased risk of infections as you've outlined in your, what was it, one of your uh, video, podcast video, videos. Video on and Majestic. Yeah, and actually Majestic. the biggest issue with the, these drugs seem to be, uh, this is not a debate, this is reality, is not uh, CRS or neurotoxicity, which does happen, but a much lesser degree than you see with CAR-T therapy. Uh, but, uh, you know, severe infections. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a patient on a trial, not with the teclistamab, who got PJP, you know. I mean, this is yeah. le legitimate stuff. You know, and I think people don't recognize that obviously BCMA is plays a role on malignant plasma cell. It turns out it plays a role on non-malignant plasma yes. cell too. And it turns out some of those are useful. And I think people don't realize that that 70-some percent rate of uh, infection in the trial uh, that won't stop it, I don't think, from having a role in the relapse refractory setting because I think that, you know, certain death from myeloma will be a worse risk than possible infectious risk. But I do think it's going to play a big role in whether or not these this company is going to be able to take this where they want to take it all the way up front because who's going to tolerate that infection risk in somebody with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma? Yeah, it, I, you know, one thing is it's probably, we don't know, I speculate that the infection risk is going to be more uh, more significant in the relapse refractory population than in a newly diagnosed. Uh, um, but, it, you know, right, let's let's be honest, what's the company going to do? They're going to be adding it to other stuff. So, you know, does this play nicely with other things? And, you know, I'm sure it will prolong progression-free survival. Uh, but, right, we could be obscuring, you know, maybe we're hurting patients, as we've seen before in other myeloma studies, the Bellini. <coughs> Bellini, yes. yeah. Bellini was venetoclax, and uh, no, Bellini was yeah. Bellini was venetoclax, venetoclax and uh, Pembro. Yeah, yeah, there's been a, a Pembro in the both the upfront and relapsed and venetoclax studies that were randomized studies. The venetoclax study uh, prolonged progression-free survival quite dramatically, actually. I mean, it was a game changer, uh, um, but there was a, a hazard ratio in favor of death uh, in the intervention arm. Just trending that. towards death, though, to be fair. Okay, yes, but <laughs> I, 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 we're getting a little off track. But I'll, I'll never be amazed that if you look at the the presentation of the Bellini study. So the, the take-home point was like, 
this is a scary drug. We need to select a better population. It, it kind of uh, obscured that and like that this was a win with the PFS and, you know, and, and it's already being widely used now in the translocation 1114 myeloma, which the myeloma investigators have assured me it's going to be a win uh, in that particular subgroup population because the PFS is so dramatic and their personal experience tells them this. Um, I am hopeful it will be a win. Yes. Uh, but as I said, I won't. I don't want to get fooled again. You know, as the as the who would say. You know, I, I'm waiting on the randomized data uh, for. It. Although I think it's compared to some crappy control arm, but but whatever. I want to at least make sure I'm not harming patients. And that's really important. You know, that it clearly is harmful in all comer, which they thought it wouldn't be. Now they're hanging their hat on 1114, where it does look like it has better activity. But you know, I don't know if it's life extending 1114 just yet. We'll see. Um, I do think that they would have done a better job if instead of treating so many people off protocol, they had just you know, prioritize this and answer the question. Now, the Pembro is another good example where the additional pembrolizumab to like imid-containing regimens increased death and was halted. And the other example is melflufen, which the company is fighting tooth and nail. But melflufen- Love the floof. The floof. <laughs> melflufen. I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, melphalin is an old drug. You know all about melflufen. You've given it a lot. We give a lot of melflufen. But melflufen is a new drug. It's better. Of course. When you add things to an old drug, it yes. makes it better. Yes. Even if they're trivial modifications. That peptide modification. Whatever it does is good. Makes it about $25,000 more. Only thing better would be if it's in the lipos if it's liposomal. Yes. Or a fixed five to one ratio. <laughs> fixed five, yeah. Or maybe it's a nanoparticle. <laughs> yes. That, that's really how you do how you do good science there. But, you know, the company is fighting and then they have some bull. Oh, I'm not supposed to swear anymore. Uh, they have some BS. That's not my rule. That's a, well, yeah. I guess, you know, I, I fell into the rule because you've been listening because um, there's a lot, a lot of listeners are really affected. They're like, well, I can't listen in front of my, your, my kids. That's what some people write to me. And then I say, you know, plenary session isn't really a kid. Yeah, friend. I don't think it's the kids. <laughs> yeah, you think the kids are interested in this? What are you, do what are you doing? Yeah, kid friend. Uh, anyway, but um, sure, maybe they're listening in the car. And I pity the poor child who would have to listen to this in the back seat. You know, it was bad enough to listen to NPR growing up with my dad driving, but you have to listen to this side. You know, I pity the kid. But anyway, yeah, maybe a bedtime to put him to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they put the agile play. Yeah. The agile. They put. They click on my whole playlist. Um, so what were we saying? Melflufen. We were criticizing Melflufen. One of our favorite yeah. things. You know, and I recently saw. You know, there's an investigator who had a thread about. You know, which of the myeloma drugs have been successful? You know, a very well respected investigator. Yeah. And it was a. I thought a very good very thread. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which the ones that really work are uh, proteasome inhibitors, at least some of them, not exazomib. Um, uh, 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 but it's it, oral. Yeah, but it's oral. Yeah, it's oral, but it it's oral, work, but it doesn't but work. It, it don't work. It causes but, diarrhea too. But yeah. it is oral, yeah. but but it doesn't work. Um, so, but Velcade was a good drug. Darrow was a good drug. Um, and and one of the secrets that all the good drugs have in myeloma is they're active, which means that if you give it by itself, the tumor shrinks. And then all the drugs in myeloma that are terrible, penibinostat, uh, uh, elotuzumab. Don't forget my favorite, Selly. Yeah, Selinexor. The drug from hell. Um, and uh, what else? There's some more that don't have singlagen activity that, that are terrible. Oh, uh, you said panobinostat, right? Yeah. We said pano, elo, selinexor. I think that's the big... Uh, Those are the, the big trifecta. Of not balancemab. That one has... you. Say, it's good at hurting the eyeballs yeah. on its own. Yeah. You know, and, and there you, you got yourself in a little trouble when you're critical of a study that takes balantamab right into the smoldering setting. The pre-disease state, and we're giving balantamab. Yeah. I think I can, I'm going to talk about it because this is what, I mean, let's put it out there. So, um, you know, I've uh, uh, always been critical of treating smoldering myeloma, which is not cancer, an asymptomatic condition that we've defined. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all the nitty gritty, but if you're going to treat smoldering myeloma, 
if, because these patients are feeling just great, it's best to give them a drug with minimal toxicity. Uh, um, and so, I, you know, is it crazy to give rivalumab to smoldering myeloma? No, it's worth studying. Uh, I wouldn't do it off protocol. Uh, um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, the, when belantamab mafodotin, uh, uh, there was a uh, – so that's a drug that also binds BCMA, but it's linked to mafodotin, uh, which is a, a toxin um, that um, when you give it to patients, uh, 70 percent uh, – uh, their eyes start hurting. Uh, about 30% can go nearly blind, so grade 3 to 4. The other 40% get still serious uh, keratitis and have to see an ophthalmologist. Every day. So not a benign drug. Clearly not making 70% of patients feel better who are already feeling normal. Uh, um, so this is not the ideal drug to give to smoldering myeloma if you were going to run a study. Uh, I think it was the MD Anderson. Uh, fairly, uh, don't worry, they're not hiring me anytime soon. So I, <laughs> I'm not moving to Houston either. You're not so. going to make cancer history. No, I'm not going to make cancer history. So I tweeted, I go, I can't believe that this study is being opened. Uh, and not, nonetheless, it, was, it wasn't even going to answer a question. It was a single arm study. A single arm study in, a, in smoldering myeloma where it was going to, I think the endpoint was, does it lower the M protein? Which I know for sure it does. Not so good, but it does in. Bad myeloma. So of course it So will. of course it's so you're gonna take asymptomatic patients and make seventy percent of vision difficulties. And uh, I, I, I I tweeted that and I I, I I the rumor has it that study may be closed now uh, uh, because of that criticism uh, because uh, someone saw the tweet. But uh, I, I'm glad you know I, I don't feel bad. Uh, uh, that was a bad study. We shouldn't be. I mean, what are we doing? It's nothing's. Yes, just because you write a, an investigator initiated study and the company says yes, you, they'll do it doesn't mean you should do it. Uh, um, and uh, we can't be doing that. Uh, I, will, I will go on forever about smoldering myeloma uh, uh, and how wrong some of those studies are. Uh, I could, we could do a whole episode on that. But that one in particular was troubling to me. I mean, I guess I think we talked about some of these things before, but you know, you and I have written. We have a JCO paper. Or no, sorry, blood, blood. paper. A blood wasn't paper. good enough for JCO. Wasn't no. good enough. For, <laughs> sorry, blood. <laughs> but, but you know, blood. I think probably a better fit for this. It was a better fit. Yeah. It was about how the IMWG, the international the International Myeloma Working Group, changed the definition to include things that were hitherto considered precursor and smoldering. Some people are treating high risk smoldering, and for all of those things. Nobody has randomized control trials that early treatment is truly superior to later treatment. That was kind of the gist of our article. The other thing we're critical of is many of these myeloma trials, which we'll, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, are testing kind of silly questions. We're critical of, you know, I mean, if, if we were to summarize what is the, the root of all the criticism, it's, look, the company's goal is to get you to use more drug early and often and give it all at once because that's what puts dollar bills in the register. And the goal of the doctor has, hither, has always been historically to use as little drug as possible to maximize survival and quality of life, give people as many treatment breaks as possible, and use as little of it as possible. But the companies want you to use as much of it as possible. And you alluded to one thing, which is there's a myeloma conference every week. And... I guess my question- Lots to know about myeloma. <laughs> Lots to know. Although I still don't know how to sequence the drugs in myeloma. <laughs> I mean, you know, for so many randomized yeah. control trials, they, they have barely, I, to be honest, they, they have not answered the most fundamental questions. What is the optimal frontline regimen? I say it's BRD for still most people, and I don't care what their quad data says yet, but we could talk about that. And then what is the optimal second-line regimen? Totally unknown. So they're like basic questions they haven't answered. They've got a plethora of trials. But my question is, you know, do we pick on them because- you have an extra grind, or do you pick on them because myeloma is actually they are doing worse than other tumor types? So I, you could probably answer this a little better than me because you treat all cancer types. But you know what I always like to compare. So first of all, I I, am, I love all the myeloma. They're good people. I'm, I really want to make that clear. So all I'm of gonna, them. Well, ninety percent. Yes, I'm going to be 
critical of some of the studies, but we are clearly doing better in myeloma than we were whatever we were 20 years ago. Oh, we could talk okay. about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, okay, they are. Patients are low. Drugs are good. Um, but, you know, I noticed this as a fellow, and this is actually where my thinking started to change and when I started to follow you, um, that every myeloma study would be a three versus two with an endpoint of PFS, taking a drug that we already knew was active in a further down setting and adding it to a backbone and comparing it to that backbone. So answering a question I don't need this study to answer uh, and not really telling me if I'm helping my patients, whether they're living longer or improving their quality of life. And it wasn't just like one study. It was gazillion, every study. And now we're in the four versus three and eventually we'll be in the five versus four. Um, but then with the smoldering space, with the plethora of single arm studies, uh, uh, combining all sorts of things, not answering questions, you know, you just compare it to indole lymphoma. Uh, you know, another thing that I know about and treat, you know, we, we, we don't have a gazillion single arm studies looking at asymptomatic follicular and CLL. We don't. We don't. With 10 bazillion in myeloma, another blood cancer, that in the asymptomatic phase is indolent, let's be honest. In follicular lymphoma... In CLL, we don't. And actually, in those given malignancies, they always ran the study that needed to be done, which would be a randomized study with uh, in an asymptomatic population compared to placebo with overall survival as the endpoint, which they just did with a brutinib in, in CLL, CLL yeah. which was a great study. You know, you know, they used to say CLL, we shouldn't treat early. It doesn't prove overall survival. But hey, we got a brutinib. We got a pill. Maybe it costs them AFib, but it's good, you know? And so they, they give the abrutinib, and yes, it prolonged the PFS, the time they needed to start abrutinib. Uh, yes. Uh, um, it delayed was, the start of which, abrutinib. Which is the what the study yeah. showed. But if you read the study, they're yeah. like, we don't recommend doing this. As opposed to if a myeloma team had done the yeah. study, they would have said, this is a home run. They would have, they, and that is what it always confused me about the field, uh, where we have smart people in both fields, both blood cancers, and similar in ways. Yeah. You know, they go, well, progression of myeloma matters. It's a broken hip. Well, progression of follicular lymphoma and CLL matters too. It can be quite devastating. But yet, the, the I don't, and I, and what has to, what's the fundamental difference? It's similar human beings that are smart and motivated. And I have to imagine pharmaceuticals behind, I, that's my hypothesis. Uh, I, I do think, you have another hypothesis? I think I share your hypothesis. Yeah. Like, like, I guess the first question was, is it worse? And I think the answer is yes. There are other fields that I can think of that are heavily captured by pharmaceutical thinking, um, but I think this is one of the worst offenders. Why? I think per year, a diagnosis of myeloma is one of the most lucrative diagnoses. Like per year, CLL, you know, it, it may be 200 to 300, I mean, it could be $200,000 per year, but myeloma, we're typically talking 600,000 because we're talking uh, uh, triplets or quadruplets plus plus Zometa, plus denosumab, plus, plus maintenance forever, plus you know. maintenance forever, plus auto, plus, and, and the other thing about myeloma is that there's not a fraction of people cured ever, so everyone is going to get every drug eventually. Um, and I think what happened in myeloma was it is also, uh, you know, it's kind of at a sweet spot of incidence, you know, in terms of like, uh, it is the most common plasma cell dyscrasia. But it's not the most common uh, blood-based cancer, and it's not the most common cancer yeah, overall. It's 1% of all cancers, I, right. I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's a small percentage overall, but everyone likes to say we're the most common plasma cell dyscrasia. <laughs> we're the most common of our thing. But what that means is that there was only so many investigators that needed to really be captured to really have the whole field. I mean, you know, the Harvard group, Anderson, Mayo Clinic, and you've already kind of captured a bulk of the investigators. And the Manny from Utah? That's the, he's the one person. He's, he's on the a future he, of myeloma. He's on a rowboat that he's been exiled from. <laughs> you know, he's been exiled from the ship. Um, but, you know, um, but, but I think that in fields like CLL and follicular lymphoma, lymphoma in general, 
many of the attendings in that field uh, have been there. You know, there are a lot of older attendings who have a different way of thinking. We have some of the older principals. Um, the, the new drugs did come in, but they also always had a big, like in CLL, until very recently, and, and for so many of us still to this day, we're giving BR, and some people still give FCR for the appropriate patient. They think that ibrutinib is not perfect for everybody, but there were still older drugs. And so, you know, some of these core principles of oncology, like, you know, if you're going to take somebody who's asymptomatic and treat them, you really need good reason to treat them. Otherwise, you're just adding therapeutic burden. I think they remember it more than myeloma. And the solid tumor people, I think, for all their faults, I can't think of many fields that are this bad in the sense of, like, this much capture. Um, lung, for all its faults, uh, and one of which I think is, like, Adora, but, um, you know, trying to give everyone Aussie when maybe they don't need it. Um, but for all the faults of lung, you know, I think most people generally agree on the frontline regimen in lung cancer, and it's based on, you know, Keynote 189. Uh, I think most people, you know, are uh, pretty much agree in uh, frontline urothelial carcinoma. Um, uh, I think most people agree in uh, colon cancer, you know? And, um, and I think some so the solid tumors, there's also going to be, you know, so many investigators, it's hard to put them all on the speaker circuit. Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, we joke about this every one week travel, but you know, they do travel every, I mean, it is ridiculous and the selfies and the self-promotion and this kind of stuff. Um, it's not good for them. I'll tell you, I think that that's one of the major reasons that, you know, many of them suffer from burnout by going and the ones that don't go suffer from FOMO. They feel like their careers are languishing, uh, because they're not on social media, et cetera. And they're told by many of their mentors that if you're not tweeting, you know, you're not your career, you're, you're not getting ahead. And you need to show the companies that you're you're playing to, for the team, um, and you know how awful would it be to travel every week? Yeah, I, I, I will. Well, I, you know, I'm just gonna listen. I'm gonna give my honest opinion on the yeah. thing, and it, if people want to be mad at me, it's fine. I mean, you know, no it one doesn't, listen to this. You know, it, it, you know, you're right. This is it's not your COVID talks. No yeah, one listens no, to the oncology. No, no. I'm I'm safe. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not. A, I don't think. And I've, we've all posted bad things on Twitter. I, I've, I've done it, and the people call me out, and I, in retrospect, I, 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 we try to learn. But I don't think it's a good look for the field to beat these, you know, gala-like things, drinking and, uh, you know, whatever, with the myeloma celebrities. You know, that's kind of what they say. And, like, you know, if I'm a patient with cancer, you know, like, I just don't think it's a – I don't think – when there's already this perception that pharma is feeding it, I just don't think it's a, good, a great look for the field. Uh personal yeah. opinion you know you can make maybe my hair is not a good look for me and you could say that you know I've, uh, you're you're allowed to say it but that that's just my feeling i don't think it's a good look and uh, i really struggle with it because i mean you know it's not just that it's it, it's going hand in hand with like recommendations that constantly defy logic and uh i'll just give one example they ran a good study that cooperative group study of revlimid versus observation in smoldering myeloma the first endpoint was pfs but the secondary endpoint was os that's a very clean study. So I want to know, finally, we'll settle. We had sort of Jesus San Miguel and Maria Mateos from, from Spain. They ran a very low-power study of RD versus observation, and they found it's a survival— It's actually a phase two, I believe. It's yes. a phase two, and it found a survival benefit. But what people don't know in oncology is that if you run a trial that's so underpowered and you find a benefit on a secondary endpoint, it's almost always exaggerated and also possibly spurious. So, like— the Jesus San Miguel paper on smoldering does not prove it extends survival. That's a false, you know. And um, they didn't do appropriate screen. They might have included actually active myeloma. Correct. In that. And, and the post-protocol Revlimid, you know, the drug that we know 
prolonged survival in symptomatic myeloma. I don't, I don't know the exact number. Manny can call, you know, tell no, me. No, but, but some people get VMP on progression. Yeah, you know, so th- some that people, study, some people get prayer on no. progression. No, I don't know. They're not, like the control arm is not getting U.S. standard no, of care. And this, the SWOG study would have answered, and you've been critical how they yes. they they allowed crossover, which nullified the study. But if we're going to make a recommendation to treat an asymptomatic individual. We need the, we should, our standards, you know, it's our standards for, for data in someone who's dying of refractory pancreas cancer, I'm going to, I don't need super high standards, but when I'm treating a symptom, an asymptomatic healthy yes. individual, I want good freaking data. And if you look, they run the study, not just in high risk. It's at the end of the study, they go, oh, but just in the high risk, which was like 20 or 30 people. We're making a, a decision to treat in, indefinitely healthy people off 20 to 30 people right. were the end point which was symptomatic myeloma, many of that, they don't report it. I've asked for this data. Yes. You know, what, we don't know what, how many of these what are just- What was it? Yeah, lytic lesions on a, on a PET scan they were getting Q2 month. Was it simple myel anemia that rapidly fixed or hypercalcemia? I mean, like if it was all broken hips that were catastrophic, okay, maybe, although I still would need more than 20, 30 patients, but sure. it's not, I promise you. It's and, probably and, gonna be like anemia, asymptomatic anemia, no. and yeah. Yeah, or asymptomatic lesions on, on a, which I argue, who even knows if we need to treat those, just like in follicular lymphoma. I don't get freaked out if I see a few few lymph nodes. So, I, and I also, I just don't see, I, as an oncologist, I don't take much joy of treating healthy people and making them feel crappy. That is not something I look forward to doing, and I don't want to do it. I don't I don't get the enthusiasm. You better go to the weekly conference and yeah. you'll get it. Well, what's the like what's the enthusiasm for for we're not you're not Kieran Smoldering, okay? They might think they are in their Gem Caesar study where they do, you know, quad therapy and auto and all these days where they actually people died. Uh, 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 I don't see the enthusiasm for why why I mean, let's work on what we need to work, like actually sick patients first you know and, we, yeah. and we're gonna get better it's, they're they're working on it and i don't know the nitty-gritty we're gonna get better at selecting out using gene signatures and things like that who are the true myelomas versus those that are more like an mgus let's just wait why why jump jump the gun but but i guess that you know i was gonna say exactly what you said which is that when they got the pfs they were they're supposed to keep running the study they stopped but they, they crossed they, over. yeah they 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 took everyone who was on observation and crossed him over to reblimid which is a it's not crossover at progression it's crossover prior to progression which forever ruined the study for ascertaining overall survival they purposely like muddied the water now what am i to think of that decision which is a terrible decision which really took a trial that was about to be informative when you couple that with the selfies the financial conflicts of interest and the weekly conference. And that's what to me is not the good look. It's not just that they're having the parties and the parties are opulent. It's not just that they're cross they're they're halting the study and crossing people over from observational treatment. It's that they're doing all of this together and that's a bad look. It looks like you didn't want to know the answer because you're taking money from the company. Yeah. I, again, I think it's a you know, in the no myeloma, comment. I have no, <laughs> comment. no comment. I don't think no we comment. can. All, well, I'm not commenting on one's motives. Yes. Everyone's motive, until proven otherwise, is good intent. These are not. That's no a good one's answer. Bad. That is that is how I feel. But you're right. Looking at it as an outsider, not I'm not in the myeloma crowd as much as I want to be. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not in that. And maybe amongst the crowd, it looks like this. I, I think there's a lot of feeding in. I mean, that's what it looks from an outsider. And. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's a good look. It, I, yeah, and I, to be honest, I don't think the. I mean, I really don't think that they are ill motivated. No, I think, but I think many of them just don't know better, and and I think some of them don't want to know better. I mean, when I re, when I hear what they say about MRD, you know, what do they call it now? Minimal residual disease? Or, no, you don't call no, it minimal. It's, it's now uh, called measurable. Measurable. Something. Yeah, measurable yeah. residual and, disease. And 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 what they don't understand is fundamentally, which is that yes, clearly people who have disease that can be measured versus people who have disease that can't be measured and consistently can't be measured, 
they're going to have different prognoses. But what you don't know is if you took someone who's MRD positive and you randomize them to more or less treatment, and if you took somebody who's MRD negative and randomized them to more or less treatment, which way do they fare better? They always assume that if they're MRD negative that you don't need to do things. But the truth is those people may still derive benefit from doing things yeah. and vice versa. And then the final thing is that if MRD were so perfect that if you're MRD negative, there would be a 100% chance of survival, but it's not 100%. And if you're MRD positive, it'd be 100% chance of relapse, yeah. but it's not 100%. You know, these are all murky kind of markers. I always say your your minimal, your measurable residual disease negative until they develop a better test. Until they develop a better test. Yeah. And you know, the, the... the other thing that people don't talk about is which, which draw of the aspirate are you sending? You know, when you send the third draw of the aspirate, that's not the good stuff. That's not the first draw of the aspirin. There's no standardization. No. Uh, and also, the aspirin draw, I mean, yes, you can standardize how many cells you count, but can, can you standardize the feeling of the crunch of the needle in the man? You know what I mean? They don't, they're not standardizing where they're putting the thing. And multiple myeloma, why is it called multiple myeloma? Because it's patchy. It's like, it is called that because on autopsy, originally, <laughs> when you split the bone, there were multiple pockets of myeloma. And so, you know, there's so many flaws in all of their thinking. And I guess what I want to say is that it doesn't mean that it's worthless or worth something. The only way to prove is wherever you do it, you gotta take people wherever you want and take people who are MRD positive and MRD negative and randomize them both to treatment, no treatment, and showed me that if they're positive, they benefit, and if they're negative, they don't. And you know, they haven't done that. They're not even close to doing that. No, and I think what, you know, what rubs me sometimes the wrong way is the, the matter of factness is we don't need, like, I know that they do better, uh, you know, yeah. and, and um, uh, that that is given that how many times in oncology we've known better uh, since the dawn of oncology where we we didn't know better you know so uh, some humbleness maybe I, I don't know I, you know maybe I'm too critical and have an angst to myeloma but uh, I don't feel that way towards other disease states so uh, there's well, some yeah <laughs> let's change gears entirely let's yes. talk about you were a medical student at, at Emory University Emory, in, in Atlanta in Hotlanta. And then you went on to do internal medicine residency and internal medicine at Washington University, St. Louis, St. Louis yes. where you stayed on to be the chief. And I guess my question for you is, you know, do you think, do you really, I feel like sometimes I think, I was like, oh, it surprises me a little that Aaron Goodman is an internist and hemolignancy person. If you didn't do internal medicine, hemolignancy, what would you have done? Oh, God. So um, I can just say in medical school, um, I started, I was going <laughs> to it was my ego. I was going to be a neurosurgeon. You were, huh? <laughs> I did my research in uh, neurosurgery. I, I remember I was my first summer uh, in Atlanta. I worked with a neurosurgeon. Uh, Sanjay Gupta. No. no he, I was, he practiced I, there. He was. Uh, he was an attending there. It was cool. Um, uh, I used to occasionally see him in the halls. He does operate. Um, but, 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 uh, but mostly on the spine. I hear. Yes. He's not, not, you know. not the CNS. Yeah. Uh, not, the, not the brain. Just the spine. <laughs> No, so I, no comments. No comments. I <laughs> but I used to, yeah. I, the summers, I, my first summer, I would do little rat brain surgeries where we would uh, ablate these, use a stereotactic neurosurgery machine on rats, mm -hmm. and we would ablate the substantia mm -hmm. nigra to mm -hmm. cause Parkinson's. I would induce mm -hmm. it, and then we would mm -hmm. do things to make it grow back. It didn't work. A we didn't ethical work like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, oh, but how many rats? Yeah, uh, seven or eight. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, so the right amount for booster. <laughs> yeah, the right amount. But okay, we can't talk about <laughs> okay, okay, okay. no, right, right. Sorry. Don't sorry. get me cheap, in that. Cheap gonna, joke. Cheap I, joke. My, cheap I had joke. a specific thing with an eye. I go, I'm not going COVID. I don't go there. That's his thing. You don't. Okay. You don't go COVID. I don't go COVID. You don't okay. go COVID. You don't even know what it is. Now, yeah, I don't want to. You're trying to get me to talk. No, about no, it. I don't want to talk about. it. I don't want to talk about it. I just asked about the number of mice. You took it there. Yeah. Where is I? Okay, okay. But I was saying I was going to be a neurosurgeon. You were doing brain surgeon on mice. and so I remember I scrubbed into my first neurosurgery case. Uh, with the uh, my mentor, and um, 
we basically stood there for nine hours. I had to pee. And he was using this, like, you know when you go to the dentist, that thing that, like, sucks the water out? Yes. It was basically that on the brain. and uh, The brain tumor. Yeah. Thing. I don't know. It, it, it has a spinning blade, <laughs> yeah. and it sucks? It was just a sucking machine. And oh, okay. I'm not going to lie. I was I was underwhelmed and a little disappointed. And at that point, I realized neurosurgery was not the, the case for me. So, and that was actually during the summer of my first year. It was, I was already getting some clinical experience. And, so uh, it wasn't the, it wasn't like the, the hours or the lifestyle or the culture. I was bored in just, the operating room. You were just bored in the Wow. That's a very and rare I thing. And I always know what I went in there thinking is the coolest thing in the world. And I realized, you know, I should have realized in retrospect that wasn't. You can ask my wife. I'm like the, the worst builder. That's not my thing is, is mechanics. Or when something goes wrong, my wife deals. You know? so, but in the operating room, I was bored. So I was like, okay, I can't do this. So then I know what I wanted to do. Um, and I remember we were second-year medical students, and uh, we had that one lecture in pathology, Dr. Sewell, um, with an older dude with a thick southern accent that loved his pathology. And it was the lecture where we learned all the lymphomas, the translocations. We, like, did all of heme malignancy in one lecture. Mm-hmm. And everyone was, like, wanted to blow their brains out. It was like, this is the worst thing in the world. And I remember being like, this is freaking cool. And I sat there and I learned it all and I aced the test and like everyone hated it. And I was like, well, if everyone hates this and I'm the only one on earth that likes this, maybe I should do something with blood cancers. But I actually, at that point, was going to be a pathologist. You were uh, really? Yeah, I was the pathology. And I remember uh, going into internal medicine, not thinking that was going to be my thing. You know, internal medicine was like, I don't want to be an internist, you know, like taking care of hip fractures and doing what the surgeons say. Yeah, no, it didn't seem glamorous. And, yeah. you know, how it is. you hear around, you know, it, it didn't have a good rep. And, you know, that, that's how I, but I did it. And um, I started taking care of patients. And I liked taking care of patients and talking to patients. That, uh, you know, maybe I didn't like taking care of a hip fracture, but I still enjoyed the interaction with the patient. And I realized that I, I couldn't be a pathologist. I, I enjoyed patient contact too much. Uh, so that's how I decided on internal medicine, and I, and I didn't like anything else. So it's very interesting. That's how I but, chose it. You know, I I think one of the most interesting things about your story in two dimensions, which is that I think so many people choose the field not based on the science of it or what it's like in the OR, but they like I feel like I get along with the neurosurgeons, or I feel like I get along with the internists. I like the way you know they talk in their meetings, and I, you know, I feel like I'm one of them. But for you, it was more cerebral. It was more like I really like hemolignancy. I, I liked I liked the science of it, and I, I didn't realize that I would really enjoy taking care of patients, which you don't know until you do it. And you don't uh, know until you yeah, do I, it. I, I I did. I also liked the the team aspect uh, of internal medicine. Although we get made fun of for rounding for ten hours, I was you know we there's joke. You know how it is on rounds. Uh, I, I did enjoy that, and uh, we didn't seem as stiff as maybe the surgeons, and uh, it was a little bit more relaxed. So I, I did also enjoy that too. So it was the combination. Did I ever tell you how I think about choosing a specialty? How did you choose a specialty? No, no, it's not how I chose. It's how I think about oh, it. Oh, tell okay. us how you think. Three categories. And, and I might have to censor myself because who knows out there who's listening is not going to like it. Okay, number one. They're already asleep, the kids. They're already asleep. Yeah, they're right, the kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number one, I say um, there are specialties that are called things to do and hours to work. So things to do specialty are like ours. Like, you know, we're here in your office and you got so many things to do before you can go home for the day. And hours to work specialties are like anesthesia, ER, trauma. And I think there's a different personality type that gravitates to one or the other. For me, I knew very early on that when I was in an ER shift and my shift ran till five and at 3.30 it slowed down or you know whatever the time cutoff was and I had that 90 minutes, for me that was like the most painful thing on earth to just stare at the clock. And I thought if I was a 50-year-old man watching the clock and there was nothing going on, you know, I couldn't take it. Meanwhile, when it's busy in the ER, time flies. I mean, like it's like a moment's gone. So for me, I knew I was a things-to-do person because I come in and I want to do all these things and be done at a certain time, and I can do it. But, you know, the problem being things-to-do in our line of work is that it's not predictable. You got a dinner at 6 o'clock. Some days, you're not going to make that dinner. 
and people need you know that's part of it that's a trade-off but some days you can leave at 12 and one and get that beach running you're, exactly. you're right yeah, yeah. okay exactly yeah. it's a double-edged sword and i liked that I, I i mean that's just my personality but you know we all know people who are in anesthesia and they love it my roommate in medical school for instance he's he loves it it was always his personality because he likes knowing that he's done it three and he can plan his life accordingly okay the next thing i always say is driver or passenger now to me passenger feels are and this is not a knock on them but they just are there are fields that complement and they're ancillary to medicine that we need them. We can't survive without them. For instance, you just call the pathologist, ask for their opinion on a slot, on a smear. But to me, pathology, radiology. Sorry, Dad. Dad's a radiologist. Uh, yeah, it's but it's a really important. Like I, I, I mean, I'm down there every week. I'm on service. I'm always down there looking at the images because I learned so much more when I see it than like draw me, walk me through it. But you know, it's a passenger in the sense that they don't make the call, ultimate call with the with the patient. They provide information to us. Um, they don't have that responsibility on their shoulders, which is good and bad. Um, but for me, the, the driver fields are cardiology, hemonc. I think historically, internal medicine was a driver field. But increasingly, as you point out, internal medicine is often hospitalist, which is really sort of a coordinator of all the other services. And I think to me, an that, important role. But it's yes. important, but it's yeah. lost that kind of driver seat. Surgeons are drivers, particularly yeah. trauma surgeons. Primary care doctors. Primary care doctors yeah. can be drivers. Um, sometimes they increasingly, you know, if it's IBD, they send to the GI doc. And if it's this, they send to, you know. OB-GYN is a driver. OB-GYN yeah. is a driver, right. So I think that's also a personality thing. Um, so I say, so, okay, so I'm a, I'm a things to do, and then I'm a, I'm a driver. I'm not an hours to work. I'm not a passenger. And then the last thing I always say, this is the one that will get me in trouble, is there's some fields that focus on objective ailments and complaints, and some fields focus on subjective. So, for instance, like orthopedic surgery and knee pain. Yes, there is like objective knee, like it literally buckles when it has no structural stability. That's a real, that's like a real objective finding. Um, but a lot of knee pain is the pain. It's a subjective feeling. It hurts. It clicks. It, it does not even feel quite right. Back pain is the same way. And sometimes you do MRIs of people who don't have back pain and people who do have back pain and the MRIs look similar. So to me, the subjective feels, I, I, I actually find very challenging because sometimes, you know, nothing's going to make them feel better. People get in that, that eighth spine surgery. And you know what I want to say is like the first seven didn't work. You really think the eighth is going to do the trick? And and I think some of the doctors have a lot of burnout because like they're just really kind of coaching the person through their emotions rather than I don't know what they're really doing in the knee for the ninth time on an arthroscopy. Meanwhile, objective ones. Although our field has a lot of subjective parts to cancer, there are some things that you can't argue with, which is MRD, whether you like it or not, it's, you can measure bone marrow plasma cell percentage, lytic lesions that shatter the bone. I mean, these are very documentable with modern technology. Cardiology is the same way. And I think different people have different things they like. I think you can be a great orthopod and focus on pain and pain specialists. But for me, that was never my bucket. So I, I'm, I think of myself as a driver, uh, things to do, and objective. No, it's, I've never that. That's a very interesting. I'm trying to think of how I would do it. I, I'm a, definitely a driver. Yes. Uh, and I'm a things to do. Yes. Um, I've never thought of the subjective versus. You know, I will say like I always thought going into oncology, it's easy. Like they got cancer or not. Correct. But it, there are some. You know. Yes. As with some of the, especially in the heme world, where they do they have cancer, but what what is even a cancer? For uh, instance, somebody goes in with belly pain, and the real cause of belly pain was anxiety, yeah. and they ended up with grade one follicular lymphoma exactly and that happens a lot and somebody comes in with non-specific complaints and they end up with mgus you know and i think one of the things you learn in cancer is that if you take somebody who's healthy but they really say things bother them and they keep saying things bother them eventually the doctor will find things that bother them 
You said this. This is not my original line. I go, someone who doesn't have a problem, you didn't order enough tests. I heard that one of <laughs> yeah, your. Yeah, yeah. I didn't come up with Show that. Show me line. a healthy person. Yeah, Josh, I just, someone doesn't have enough ordered tests. enough tests. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, so that's how I think about specialties, and uh, um, and then I think there's also that part of like, you know, when you're in the team room, do you feel like you click with the people, and that's hard, you know. And I think medicine people, I clicked with. Um, you know, there were some, I don't want to name them all, but there's some specialties you go in and I'm like, oh gosh, these people are quite weird. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to spend my time with these the people. Neurology? No, we're joking. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> he no, wasn't sad. I, I didn't neurology. say, oh, yeah, of course, of course, diagnose and adios. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So then that takes us to, then you were the chief. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so you I, must've been a good resident. I was, I will say I didn't, I, uh, Despite what, I actually was kind of a shy kid, and it wasn't until internal medicine, you know, you know, you don't think of it in medicine, but um, presentation and talking is very important. You don't realize that. You don't go into medicine, but learning how to communicate, especially when you start presenting in front of the team. Uh, but yeah, when I was a resident, especially when I started becoming a second year resident, and I was more leadership roles, uh, I started to excel. I finally like found, uh, uh, you know, I found what I liked to do, and I was learning all the diseases, and I was teaching a lot, and I really, really loved it. And that's where I started, I feel like I started to shine, and blossom as a physician um yeah i was reasonable enough where they chose me as chief you know you know chief you know i wouldn't say that a lot of people wanted to be chief uh uh you know there's pros and cons but uh uh chief year which was as for those who don't know in internal medicine is, it is an additional year you're actually an instructor uh you're no longer technically a resident uh you still get paid crap but you're 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 an instructor and uh that year is great because it's mainly it's all teaching, and you actually get to attend on the inpatient teaching service and, and, and work with residents. You, the, the residents staff their clinic patients with you, so it's a very rewarding thing that, that, that I enjoyed much. Yeah. You know, and I always tell people that um, there's uh, – you show me somebody went to Harvard, show me went to Stanford, yeah. and there's always going to be somebody who went to Harvard who's just no good and I don't want to work with. You know, that, not just me, but nobody wants to work with. There's always somebody who goes to Harvard. There's always somebody who goes – like there's no benchmark for somebody that's a guarantee they're going to be good to work at except for one thing. And that's being chief. And the reason I say that is that chief is like the one thing in medicine where um, they're not picking you based on an application process. They're picking you based on three years of watching you. And you can't, you, everyone can fake an interview. There are lots of people who can BS on an interview, but you can't BS through two years of residency. And the people who are chiefs are always very good to work with. Whenever I'm on service with a fellow and the fellow was a former chief, I know they're good. And I've never, it's never been contradicted. They're always good. And one of the things you said that really struck me, which is communication and teaching. And I think this is something that like people don't get. Um, everyone is really focused on trying to do a good job for the patient. And I think that's really important. But I think um, when you're talking about the domain of teaching and we're talking about internal medicine, there is something about the thing you need to work on, and I think most people still need to work on this, and it's hard to, like, I don't actually tell people this because it's hard to tell them, but, like, speaking to convey information. Yes. I'm like, I mean, no offense to anybody. I'm not, think, I'm not thinking about any unique person. I'm thinking about, like, aggregate for many, many years, which is that if you're talking in a muffled tone, if you're, if you're running things together, if you haven't, like, clarified the thoughts in your mind to make separate, distinct points, non-overlapping, if you're redundant, you know, people always say the attending didn't listen to me. Part of the reason is you're not speaking in a way to keep their attention. You are talking in a monotonous, boring way. Just like you go to a talk and the speaker didn't capture your attention, you're not capturing the attending's attention on rounds. And it matters because that's why the attending's asking you to repeat labs and vitals, et cetera. Yeah, I used to, I think, conveying information in a concise, logical way in medicine is so important, whether it's teaching or communicating with colleagues. You know, classic example, I think, 
I'll be honest, when I was a med student or intern, it's sometimes scary to call a consult. You're calling some senior guy, and then maybe they'll think it's stupid. I won't. And like, with some practice, I love, you know, I, I still call the consults myself if my team's busy because I know exactly how to convey what my question is, the pertinent clinical details they need for that given specialty. And I take pride in within two seconds, you know, 10 second talk, they go, oh, yeah, I know what's going on and what I need to do. And that, um, I, 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 you know, it's a practice. I mean, I guess, I mean, some people are innately better at doing it than others, but, uh, yeah. you know, how do you learn? I mean, one is doing a lot of patience, but yeah, the presentation, there's a reason why we teach it in a structured way, but you, the, you know, I think what I tell fourth year students is I don't expect you to know crap how to really manage people, but what I want you to be able to do is gather information and be able to present it in a logical way by the end of your fourth year where you can make a presentation. I mean, I still, I have attendings who can't present a cons like we'll present our new patients and i go what the hell's going on i i don't know you know it's a skill that's lost you know but very important i have gone to so many talks where yeah. very senior people present a case and i do not know what, what the hell's going on what the I, don't hell know. I don't know what they're saying i was like you are it's so confusing and if you really think about it like you know i i know i, I know i can imagine why you're good at the, calling the consults like one you need to like i think one of the key to calling the consult is you need to know what is the exact question you want them to answer? And also, why can't you answer it? So it takes two yeah. things, right? Like, you know, you know a lot about medicine. You can't answer it, but they can because they know something you don't. Exactly. And what, what information they need. Yes. Like, you know, what they don't need. Like classic example, I've told this on Twitter when I was an intern. Uh, can I, I, I might swear. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I called this nephrology <laughs> council and I was probably going on and on about something stupid about my, you know, the patient's pet cat that they didn't care about. And at the end, the guy's like, just give me the fucking lights. You know, he, <laughs> <laughs> you know the nephrology just want to know the guy's creatinine and potassium, yeah. you know, how urgent it was for him, which, you know, you and you learn that stuff. So. Yeah, it's practice and it, and it becomes enjoyable and you stop being a nerve-wracking experience and like communicating. I love, I think I'm like you, I love giving talks. Oh, I don't dread them at all. I, I I enjoy, like this, we didn't prepare. I, I like talking and it, it's a skill that somewhere it clicks if you do it enough and you got to practice. You really do give a lot of talks, do them a lot and eventually it will become an enjoyable experience for you. It, it, it is. And, it, and that's what kills yeah. me about listening to some of these things where people are like... Um, you know, how do I, I really hate dread giving talks. I was like, you have to change your whole worldview. Yeah. Because if you're in the business of academic medicine, the only commodity from research to teaching to on the wards is talking. You gotta get better at talking. You gotta get better at thinking about what are the points you wanna convey to this person who is busy and distracted and tired and get those across. And I agree with you that I think it's, it should be like a rewarding part of your job. If you really dread the job talk so much, you just should be going into private practice. I mean, I don't know what you're doing in academics. It's a talking business. Yeah, no, I mean, I I look forward to being invited to, and I take every opportunity. And yeah, some people might dread it because it's work, but if you're talking about what you know, like if I'm talking to medical st students or residents, like if I don't know it in my brain, and I got to like look it up and put it in a slide. They don't freaking need to know it. You know, I'm a hematologist, so... You know, I and they know me here. I mean, I I don't very rarely do powerpoints. I just take a board and I go, "What do you guys want to learn about?" And we do it. And you do it enough, it becomes just part of you know, you know. Yeah, you might not be exactly 100% you know reading the slides, but it's more enjoyable for everyone. You just got to do it a lot. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. You know, one thing I feel like we're doing a lot in academic medicine these days is is the pity party. You know, I see everyone on Twitter and they're like, you know. Why am I not promoted? Why don't I do this? Why don't I do this? I'm like, this is really, you guys are like, um, oh, earlier today I was talking to somebody and this person said, was talking, did a research paper and it was like, um, when a TV show came out and this was like a Netflix show about teenage suicide 
And in the wake of the teen TV show, there was a spike in um, uh, suicide, like how to kill myself searches online. There were some powerful anecdotes of teenagers who killed themselves. And then later, I think there's a paper like 300 days later showing that there was actually an increase in teen suicide. And what was the point of that is just that like sometimes you prime people with something and it can stick. And similarly, I wonder if the, the continual pity party that everyone is like indulging in, it primes you to just be disappointed in life. And I always tell people that, you know, one of the things about changing jobs is learning that some things get better, a few things might get worse, hopefully more things get better than get worse, and then the other thing you learn from changing jobs is that some things suck everywhere. And you can keep changing jobs, but those things that suck everywhere are gonna suck everywhere, and you just need to learn to be happy with what you have. Yeah, no, I agree, but you know, there's also the, the counter argument is yes, I, think, go on. I think every generation, like I think when we were students, yeah. our tenants were like, these wusses, like, what are they complaining about? You know, like, I wasn't like this. And now I'm more in their shoes and I look at some of the things. I'm like, what are they? They don't know how good they have it. So, well, right? It's always, you know, some part of that. There's always that uh, I walked uphill both ways in the snow. Yeah, and I don't know the the fine line. So clearly, like, you know, uh, you know. But there's now there's all this, um, I'm missing all these clinics because I got to go to the dentist. And I was like, you know when I went to the dentist? Before and after training. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I still remember. I hadn't gone to the dentist in five years. I went to the dentist. And I, he's like, what do you do? I go, I'm a doctor. And he goes, and why haven't you been to the dentist in five? Like, he made me feel bad about myself. But you're right. I, I didn't I didn't go to the dentist, you know. And um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to piss and people you're, off. And you're only yeah. missing two teeth. Yeah, I, I got straight teeth. I, I'm going to the dentist next week to get my teeth cleaned. Yeah, you know, don't do too much digging in the dental sciences. Yeah, I don't want my Q six month dental X rays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do too much digging in the evidence base for cavities, etc. Okay, so yeah, but I think it's beyond not even just trainees. I'm talking about like I think I see all these faculty. I, okay, I'll have to be more specific. So I recently saw somebody, and they were like, you know, I haven't been. This is so bad, but you could say it. Oh, all right, I'll say it. That's, that's no one listening <laughs> no at this point. No, no one's, one's listening. listening. No one's listening. So it's like this person was like an assistant professor, and um, you know had been doing it for like five years, and they're talking about like they're not being promoted, and um, I was just curious. So I like PubMeted this person, and there was like three papers, and I was like, okay, look, buddy. I was like, look, I mean. Uh, yeah, uh, okay, I, I'm sure you could be a great doctor, and I do think we should we need to value that more, and I'm sure you could be a great teacher, and I do think we need to value that more, and there should be like a clinical educator tract, and there is, but like you can't be surprised that you're not being promoted because this is one thing that people care about. Yeah. You know, like obviously, it's not a secret what the rules are. They want this, and they want that, and they told you that like five years ago, and look, I'm not, I'm against publishing BS just to publish BS, but like, sure, but you can't you just can't be surprised. Yeah, you know you, the, you know the game. You can't be surprised. Yeah, there and there is a game and like, you know, clinical, you know, research that's not my main thing, but you know, you know it is required and I make sure to it's not hard, you know, you get involved in some groups and like, well, yeah, I, you know, I don't think most institutions maybe if you're at Harvard they do aren't requiring, you know, a million first author or original pieces, but just some evidence that you're engaging in. Engage. And it's a bucket, right? Research, education, patient care. And you got to do a little bit of each bucket. You got to do a little bit of each bucket. Yeah. And I'm it, like it, 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 and yeah. even if you don't want to do research, you could at least write a paper on like, you know, strategies for teaching or whatever the thing is you're passionate like, about. Like like I do a lot of editorials like that. I yeah. like writing that and you know, yeah. those those count, you know. Those count. Yeah, yeah. those count. Yeah. I mean, we do, yeah. But anyway, so I was like, oh, well, those complaints continue. Um, so Did you, you tweet back, I PubMedded you. <laughs> no. That wouldn't look so good. Yeah. It wouldn't look good. <laughs> I, can't, I, I try not to reply to anybody these days. 
I had, uh, you, you know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I read something about myself that's so factually inaccurate. I'm tempted to reply, but I'm like, you know what? There's no point. It's, it's, it's not. It's I not used to. Right. I've actually toned it down on Twitter too lately with replying to. It's just not. It's, it's it's just not worth it. You know, somebody told me that like they actually like um they they think that most like they think that people like us, you and I, and others, that we want to have a forum to talk about medicine. Like we really want that a social media forum. Why? Because you're here, I'm there, and sometimes. I want to be able to communicate with, you know, people who see hemodynancy. We want to talk. But they just say, like, Twitter is just, like, it's just too poisonous, and it's not where we want. And this person thinks it's, like, ripe for disruption. Like, if there was a different platform where there were, I don't know, some etiquette to it or some rule or – but, you know, I don't know. All these things have founder effects too. Yeah, I mean, where we could – yeah, where we could be critical but not – you know, it, it just always – it degenerates. And, you know, we always say it. It always happens. It continues to happen. Uh, but I, I still think Twitter in general is a good. I mean, it's how I met you. It's how I've met a lot of good people, Such and it, a it, it is. Sword. Yeah, it's it's a largely how I keep up with the literature and the greatest things, and I get to see how you know I don't do, you know I don't do lung cancer, but I wouldn't know anything about lung cancer for, for Twitter right now. You know, I still get to keep up a little bit with that literature and have context from for, uh, context for when I think about these things. So it, it is good. You just have to. I've stopped. I you know, it's you gotta. I've been to blame. You know, you always want to get that last word in when someone pisses you off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do. Right. I, oh, I know the feeling. Yeah, At some point, you just got to not reply. Uh, or you mute the thing. They let you mute it. You know, uh, uh, But it's hard. It's hard. So then you finished Chief, and then you came out here to be a UCSD fellow. Oh, you left the, the key part, though. What? I was a – so I was I liked blood cancers, and I liked oncology, but I, my second year of residency, uh, 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 I was forced to rotate on the bone marrow transplant service. Uh, at Washu, oh, uh, yeah, I wasn't. It's a hard service as a resident, at least at Washu was. You were you were like act as a fellow, and uh, it's grueling. It's like six days a week, for you know, twelve, fourteen hour shifts. And uh, there's a, a gentleman named Doctor DePersio. He's a fairly mm-hmm. famous in the transplant literature, and he was the attending at that time. He's also the chair. Uh, I believe I don't know if he still is. He was the chair of the the division uh, of Hemoc there, and um, he showed me a paper about CAR T cells. It was the one of the first New England Journal papers on CD19. Directed CAR T cells for BALL. You were a second year resident? Yeah, it was like a, it was in 2013 or 14. Those original New England Journal papers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay, for, this was yeah, not yeah. approved. And it was, and he's, and I'd never heard of a CAR T. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's the coolest freaking thing in the world yeah. that you could take someone's own T cells, engineer them, and induce a remission. And that one of that first patient described, she you still see her on Twitter. She's in remission and doing great. Yeah. Uh, I, and I was like, that's the coolest thing in the world. It? It's Elizabeth science fiction. Whitehead or something. Yes, yeah, you were exactly yeah. right. And. Um, and then I was like, this is what I need to do. And I, that's where I was sold on on malignant hematology and cellular therapies. And uh, I, I interviewed everywhere uh, uh, for Hemonc, uh, all over the, the country. And um, I interviewed here. And uh, I, I remember I stayed at my buddy's place. We went out for fish tacos, had a beer by the beach. And I was like, I never want to leave San Diego. Wow. And uh, uh, they had it's a great place. We're number one in San Diego. Number one in San <laughs> you know, Diego. We have, uh, uh, and, and the the program was good. The the people were great. And when I stayed on as a fellow, I I just made it my point. I go, I don't want to leave. And I did everything I could. And this is another thing, right? You know, you want to if you want to stay in academics, your best chance is staying where you were a fellow. Sure. And I knew I wanted to stay in academics, and I knew I wanted to be a bone marrow transplanter. I knew I never wanted to leave San Diego. So I told myself, I better please the people at B uh, uh, um, because I don't want to leave here. And uh, my second and third year, I made it a point uh, to use – I did less maybe research research and and did a lot of clinical rotations with the bone marrow transplant faculty here and showed them that I was reasonably – had good knowledge and could communicate well and get along with people. And, right, people want to hire – 
you know, in academics, they want smart, good people, but they don't want a bad apple. And I mm -hmm. think at, you don't realize that until you become an attending, because we've all worked with bad apples mm -hmm. that can be really disruptive to a program. Uh, they don't want that. They want someone competent that they know can provide good patient care uh, and smart and easy to work with. And your best chance to do that is to show that as a fellow when you're third year. And uh, they offered me a job uh, afterwards. And um, I shouldn't tell this, but I don't ever want to leave. You know, you could offer me that job, not that Harvard or MD Anderson ever would, but I would not take it. Uh, I'm very happy here. You don't want to live in the freezing cold of Boston. Nope, I want to stay in San Diego. I, I'm taking you. I mean, uh, yeah, well, I'm gonna. You know, it's random Wednesday night. What are we gonna do? We have some tacos. Uh, you know, and like the. We're it's, gonna get a it's, get a, a drink. Uh, yeah, we might have a beer or two. You know, it's and it's just a, the quality of life here is, is don't, great. Don't try to find us. Don't yeah. try to find us. Okay, so um, you know, one thing that struck me about that that part of your your biography was that you rotated as a resident on transplant. We don't let people do that anymore. I mean, it's very rare. I don't think they do that at. I don't think they do that in most places. No, and at WashU it was different. We let residents do it, but they're more like, like when you were a resident, you picked up eight or ten patients. Like I didn't really even know. You don't know what transplant is. I mean, most. I mean, you don't get it till you do it. And yeah. uh, even as an internal medicine, I mean, that's a division of medicine, the transplant. But no one knows what the hell it is. It's like you know, it's crazy medicine. We don't understand how to read their notes. Uh, yeah, I, I think as I always tell the, the if they care about my opinion, uh, the Society of Bone Marrow Transplant and Cellular Therapy, you want people interested and motivate them. You got to get them in as residents. Uh, uh, that's where you you get the hook and start exposing them to that. If anything, that society, what is now ASTC, yeah, they changed yeah, it they changed because it they, they realized want... BMT might might go away a little bit. Yeah, they wanted <laughs> so, to get that CAR T yes. under their umbrella. Yeah. So yeah, the American Society of Cellular Transplant, yeah, something like that. It used yeah. to be ASBMT, yes. and I I went to their conference in the wonderful city of Orlando. Yes, Orlando. Um, but you know, it's so interesting because if I were them, the thing I would do is actually try to encourage residencies to make residents rotate on transplant. Um, even though that comes with some risk and they'll need like very close supervision and you might want them working hand in glove with good mid-levels who have more experience, um, it will be good for them because that exposure really does kind of foster um, a love for it. Um, for me, I got to rotate as a resident on uh, acute leukemia and solid tumor, which to be honest, inpatient solid tumor is you know not exactly no. yeah a representation of oncology, but inpatient leukemia is actually pretty good. I mean, that's really uh, good medicine. Um, and, and that kind of interested me and also getting lucky and got paired with a few attendings who I really hit it off with, uh, Dr. Ma and Dr. Munchie, who are at uh, Northwestern to this day, and that kind of pulled me in that direction. But, you know, it's interesting that um, um, I was going to say about, um, about, uh, about your path is that um, uh, when I think about residency these days, I feel like they are making a big mistake in a number of ways, and I'll tell you what I think their mistake is. Like, it was clear that I was never a believer that just working long hours for long hours' sake was useful. And I never thought the 30-hour shift had something super valuable. And everyone was like, oh, well, you get to see the continuity of the medical care. I was like, well, guess what? From hour 30 to hour 49, you're not there. You know, so you're eventually going to miss some hours. Like, you just can't see it all. That magical 30 hours in the ICU. Yeah, right, you yeah. really get to see it. Yeah, you get to see yeah, the whole history of illness. And they've done so many reforms to try to take the burden and the stress off the residents. But what I worry is that what they're doing is they're limiting the number of patients they see, they're lowering their caps, but they're not actually taking away the thing that was the misery part, which is just like endless documentation ordering and scut work and endless like discharge planning. I mean, the job of a resident, I sometimes see them, they have no time to sit back and reflect, who is this man or woman 
what is, where are they in life? What do they really want? And what can we do to make their life better? They don't have time because they're just a sea of, um, you know, interdisciplinary rounds yeah. and and doing some bullshit paperwork. And then um, they already start working on their discharge summary. Like every day they add, you know, so that it's not a burden when they do. I'm like, why are it? You don't get to put like. When you're on a transplant service, you get to see something that's really remarkable, which is like, what does it actually mean to take somebody else and graft it in, you know? And they don't get to see that. And sometimes I always make a point, um, and some people may know, like I round in person, and here's what I do. So like we, I, I talk to, I sit down with a fellow, and we talk, and then we round on all the patients. Would you pre-round? I don't pre-round. I'm not a pre-rounder either. I, tr I mean, then you got. I mean, I mean, I talk outside the patient room and then walk in, see that patient, go on to the next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so how I do that it. kind of thing. Like, yeah, I don't go. I don't flip the cards or whatever. You know, and then I, go. I don't, I don't write anything. Yeah, I, I don't have, even have a pen. No, I don't yeah. write. Yeah. So I, but but I, I sit with the I sit with the fellow or walk and talk, and the fellow tells me everything and I ask questions of the fellow and you know we got great fellows. I mean that's well, UCSF. Yeah, yeah right. I mean they're usually great. <laughs> Um, and, and so they know everything, you know, uh, some, you know, you can teach a little more than other summer, like, you know, it's like hard. I'm like, I should, I better be taking notes from this dude. I was like, this guy's got something to teach me, you know? Okay. But you know, they're really good, but, but some are, but some like you, I'm like, oh good. I got something to teach this person. Um, uh, so then we round on the patients and then here's what I like to do. I like to know where all the primary teams sit. Uh, I, you know, I, I work at two hospitals and one hospital, they keep moving rooms, which is so silly. You're on a consult service, right? Yeah. yeah. He, and it's, he, it's like benign heme, it's malignant mm -hmm. heme and solid tumor on both of these services. And so then it, I like to round on all the teams and in one hospital, they all sit in the same place. And when you round on the team, you go talk to them face to face, which is great. They have questions about the other patient they never consulted you on, but you know, you can just chime in, oh, what's the prognosis with muscle invasive bladder cancer? You know, when he's not here for that, but you know, you can tell him what you know about it. And and then I always like to try to like really, I don't know, I try, I mean, I'm trying to do this, which is like, I don't wanna just tell them what to do. I wanna tell them like why I'm saying what I'm saying. And hopefully if they disagree, they can argue back. And I had one fellow a few years ago and he was just so good. He was just like, oh, Dr. Prasad, um, that's a very nice plan, but, but if I might, for the sake of argument, and then he like came up with his plan, and I was like, "Hmm, well played, sir. Let's go with your plan. It's more." I was testing you. <laughs> I was just, of course, I would have. I, you know, I knew that. But if I were to say it all, yeah. you know, so you ever get that? But I find that when you go to the the general medicine teams and um, or whatever the primary service can be, neurology or you know even some other services, and you sit down and talk to them, they're really appreciative. In just a few minutes, you can like explain everything, and. I swear, they all say, thank you so much for coming by. We've been so lonely because in the pandemic, they just sit in their rooms and nobody, you know, they don't have conferences in person. Bringing COVID up again. Oh, God, <laughs> I no, don't care. No, yeah, but they're lonely. No, I, 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 so BMT, we are actually the primary service. Yeah. We do the medicine. And I will say from the primary side, I, I do love when the residents, fellows and uh, attendings from the consults, or we call a lot of consults on BMT, yeah. you know. Uh, I, I do, doctor. I, I, yeah, I like when they come to the room, and we, when they do here at UCSD, and uh, I don't even need to read their note, and they don't even want to write a good note anyways, you know. Uh, it's much easier just with a simple communication. I don't want to read their note. And I don't want to read their note. I don't want to read their note, and I love, yeah, for me when I was on BMT, and um, I would always, uh, the ID doctor, always talk to the ID doctor. Love the ID doctors, we need them. They should just round with us. You know, but someday I'm really going to pressure them and try to ask them, like, you know, what is the evidence they have? You know, because they love to, they just throw out the guns. They, they love to order uh, urine legionella. You know, they yeah, love, yeah. yes, they, yes. Have you ever seen a positive uh, inpatient <laughs> no, I histoblastic? No, I quitted that, and I got, I got yelled yeah. at because apparently I'm not checking enough, you know. Um, okay, sure. Uh, it, it I've seen happen. some histo. I see, we see some crazy bugs. I mean, I've seen mucor and aspergillus yeah. and, like, that's run-of-the-mill. 
ever since I Save You, Conazole came out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I Save You, Conazole. Yes. And there's another drug with some silly name. Crescemba? Crescemba is what? Isavucana. I don't yeah, know. but then look at it. It's I Save You. I Save yeah, You, Conazole. Yeah, I, don't oh, know. I then, call it Crescemba. Crescemba. But the other one that's funny is uh, Reblozole. Remember? Oh, that that's a that's an MDS drug. Yeah, a loose that's the sept. loose batter sap. Yeah, that uh, soaks up the TNF. Yeah, actually, it kind of works. It blows, but it blo- <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be. It's a, not a great name. Oh, like it sounds like red blood cell. I was like, <laughs> yeah. no, it sounds like or this blows. Reblozel. <laughs> they all have terrible names. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something really nice about oncology rounding that I I think residents they never really really uh, appreciate and I don't know. Also, like. You know, you ever watch somebody play a game that you don't know how to play, um, and you see that, like, I don't know, for me, I don't know how to play the game, uh, I don't know, Mahjong, but I've watched videos of people. My mom could teach you. Really? Yeah, hardcore Mahjong player. Really? Yeah. So I don't know how to play, but I see people playing, and it looks like fun. Yeah, it's like a poker kind of thing. But yeah. to some degree, isn't BMT like that? Because, like, when you're a resident or a medical student, you come on BMT, and you may know some things, but you don't really understand, yeah. you know, all the things that we're thinking about. And so they get to watch a game where they don't know all the rules. And but sometimes you still see that it's fun and you want to learn. Yeah, and I said like you do a month on BMT if you try and listen, even not on your patients, you could learn. It is complicated what we do, but there's there's rules, you know, and it's there there's uh, yeah there's rules and there's a flow of things going. At the very least, you could pick up the lingo and the rules, so when you're dealing with our patients and whatever specialty you go to, you have some context uh, to deal with it. But there there are rules, yeah. You know, my objection to BMT is that thing that I published in that paper in Gem Internal Medicine, the level of evidence, which is that... Uh, oh, we could talk about this if you want, yeah. Right. Yeah, which is that, I mean, if we're perfectly honest, there were a few things that... Uh, well, let's, let, me see, let me see a couple things. We all know a patient with some cancer that we are 100% sure in our heart of hearts they would have been dead if you didn't do the aloe. I'm a, I have so many people like that. And, I, and, okay, so many people who I know this person would have been dead, they're alive and well thanks to the aloe. Um, but there's so many conditions where, you know, um, I, I don't know if we're really benefiting people by routinely taking them to aloe, uh, intermediate risk AML. Yeah, uh, so you know, you're, as a, as a trans, uh, transplanter, you're trained to transplant, and uh, you bring them to a transplanter, they're going to transplant. You yeah, know, the hammer, uh, it looks like a nail. Yeah, I will say, I would like to say we're a little unique at, at UCSD. I'm a malignant hematologist. If they don't need transplant, I don't do it. And if they need, I, 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 I take care of many non-transplant patients. But um, this is something that actually, uh, when I started my training, you know, as you said, there's not parachutes, but high-risk AML with bad things, cytogenetics, you know, in a young person, they're not going to live a long time, okay? And without uh, that aloe versus, uh, you know, that graft versus leukemia effect, they are going to die of their disease. And uh, I don't need a randomized study, although my, there I'll do it. But intermediate risk AML, you know, it'd be one thing if allogenic transplant was rather benign, but actually it's probably the worst thing we do in medicine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is the single hand and, you know, even in best case scenarios, a 10 to 15% treatment related mortality in the best case scenarios. Yeah a risk of defiguring lifelong graft versus host disease, a whole host they just published in JCO of long-term complications of transplant. Your life is never the same after transplant, even if it works very well. So the fact that we could do it with not great evidence in someone who may be cured. Yes, that's you what may, gets me. That I will not, and what always has amazed me about the transplanters is, sorry colleagues, is how quickly you will recommend transplant and do it as a must in someone with intermediate risk AML. Right. Like, this is, and that's, it still bothers me much about my field. Like, I hate the intermediate risk consult. And I, I know, I mean, I, I, I want to know, if, I would wish, and I'd like to know for sure that these patients are thoroughly consented in, and I don't know if they are, you know. And, and uh, like, that 
I, I hate that about my field. And I, the matter of fact that you have to allo, like, I, like this isn't like, like if you object to allo in, in CR1 of an intermediate risk ML, you shouldn't be like ridiculed. Like, I think there's some reasonable thought process, you know, that, that maybe it's okay to, to not do it. And especially we do have actually one randomized study now. Granted, there were issues with the randomized study. Right. Uh, it didn't accrue great because we had our preconceived mission, but it showed that Maybe you don't need to do an allo in CR1, and you can salvage them in CR2. Uh, uh, this is the uh, yeah. European data. Yeah, it's the European this, this data. Summer, yeah. You know, in my heart of hearts, right? Allo has to be damn good if it's going to knock off 15 to 20% of patients. And still have a survival and benefit. So it, has yeah, it has to be damn good. So best case scenario in intermediate risk AML, best case scenario, it might be a – it's not some game changer. Yeah. And I think we forget that. And I think as transplanters, we get skewed, and that bothers me greatly about my field. And – uh I have no problem allografting those poor risk. And same even with auto. Like, you know, the more I thought about it, like I used to auto every mantle cell lymphoma. Like, what is the data for mantle cell lymphoma autologous transplant? It was actually one crap, not crap. It was a randomized study. They all got treated with RCHOP. And if they got an auto, lo and behold, their PFS was better. You know, like that was it, you know? Like that's our data uh, for auto in in, uh, mantle cell. No overall survival advantage. So like, you know, I don't don't like auto for mantle. I don't like auto either. And and uh, I don't like alternating RCHOP DHAP auto. I know people say I don't like it, but. So there's one randomized study that shows PFS is better with hydrocytarabine. Uh, it wasn't the best of studies. Like, yeah, I mean, BR works pretty damn good for, for a mantle cell. Yeah, and, and uh, now, I got to add the abrutinib, though. Well, <laughs> oh, gosh. You got to shine gotta that, shine it shine up. that <laughs> piece of sh- Yeah, I know that shine. Um, yeah, well, you know, the hazard. Oh, I didn't see the letter and back in shine. The authors point out something that there is a numerical benefit for OS. Uh, hazard ratio was 1.00. That letter, I mean. Shine authors, I know you're on Twitter. I'll probably have to tweet again. Uh, You guys have been angry at us. Um, Not really authors, just like some of the accrual sites have been mad. Yeah, I believe there are authors too, though. Oh, some authors too. Um, I know it's a New England journal, but like when we pointed out this thing, I mean, I I just wait for the data one day in New England journal just be like, one of our probably be like, you know what? You're right, and we will do better next time. That that's it. Just like when yeah. will that ever? <laughs> I was really hoping in this case they, they, there wasn't you know. No, instead they like yeah the hazard ratio, which we won't give. There's a trend towards. The, I couldn't believe that response. You know, I guess that, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that response, and I you know you're really onto something, which is that why don't I've never seen a letter to the editor, no matter how potent the author said you're right, and we'll work on it for next time. And I think the I reason respect is that it, so much, so much. You know, I think this is one of the things that we were talking about a little bit offline, which is like, there's a value to being a generalist. And one of the things is, when you're a generalist, and to, to some degree, you're a generalist, you're like a, a heme- I'm a general heme- hematologist. Yeah, you're a general hematologist. And and I'm a generalist, even more general than you. And there are people who are even more general than me. Yeah. Um, but in oncology, we encourage everyone to be a sub 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 specialist. And the problem is, like, the nice thing about being a generalist is, you know, there's not a single regimen that, like, I'll take a bullet for. I'm not gonna take a bullet for ABVD, even though I do think AABD is like not as persuasive as people think, but you know, uh, yeah, okay, we talk about echelon, but uh, you know, but like, there's nothing like, and if you if you showed me in determination, which is what I was about to ask you about, that transplant and CR1 is like not as important as we historically have thought, and you know, we could do a whole lot less of it, I would say like, yeah, I'll embrace that. Um, but I think it's tough for specialists like interventional cardiology; they only put the stents in, and so they get orbit on their heads explode, or um, you know, people who focus on one disease or you know they have one hammer it's hard for people to say that you know or people who do one trial for many years it's hard for people to say like yeah you're right now that i think about it maybe I, after we saw the results of viale we shouldn't have continued ivocidinib aza versus aza 
with post progression, nothing. You know, like maybe we shouldn't have done that. What I would have liked is a statement from our field, and maybe it exists and I'm unaware, but like the determination study, and for those who don't know, it took auto transplant uh, in transplant eligible patients in CR1, and it showed a PFS advantage, uh, uh, but no overall survival advantage, and only 20% about of the now, no intent to transplant upfront got a transplant at relapse. So it basically shows that auto is not the game changer it once was. And my interpretation is like, I'm not saying not to auto, but like, I'm gonna think a lot harder before I take that 74 year old with diabetes, some, some kidney disease from his myeloma uh, to a MEL 200. Uh, uh, um, and if anything, it's a celebration of our better therapies in myeloma. So that's what I would have liked our field to do. And you know, some people get like, they get angry when you say like, maybe yeah. we should. No, they got angry. For personal experience, like they get angry. Like, you know. And then th their point was that the PFS benefit is huge and that's quality of life. But the problem with that argument is they measured quality of life and it's not better. It's like they directly the measure. It's the same. <laughs> Actually, it was worse for a few months. Right, for a few. Yeah, it's a dip. And then the other challenge I see with them is yeah, the first PFS makes people feel better, then show it. And guess what? It was a. It actually. It's a great study determination. It's great. It's I mean, a, the medical writer they paid for did a great job. No. <laughs> I mean, it's a great study. It's a great study because it's like you know. It's better than the IMF study because the crossover rate was low. Yeah. So it further makes logic. One could take it to the logical conclusion, which is, do they need transplant at all? I think that's the next question. But it certainly should temper enthusiasm. One of the things I said that got me and that people were angry trouble? about. Uh-oh. Which was that, that like, look. We oh, have, I know what you, yeah. Yeah. Like, I would be like, we would de-adopt this tomorrow if Medicare slashed the reimbursement rate. And then people were like, how could you say it's monetarily motivated? And it's like, look, it's nothing about you. You take anything in medicine where the evidence is gray. From knee replacement to stenting stable or and if you chain if you have a dial what's the reimbursement rate and you turn it up you'll get more people to do it and you turn it down people will do it less yeah. that's the power of incentive it's not a knock on anybody it's just the way the world works so if you take bone marrow transplant in CR one and you doubled the reimbursement people will do it a lot more and if you cut it in half they'll do it a lot less maybe not fifty percent less maybe not twice as much but they will go increase and decrease and my point is that after determination CMS should cut the rates and they cut the rate they'll get it to slow and then it'll, it'll just work itself out you're gonna do it in the person who you're more who, who you really think is gonna get that benefit and less in the person who you don't if they cut the rates yeah I forget the wording of your exact tweets yes, but uh, I don't think you said like as an individual doctor, oh, you're going to do more to make more money. You know what it was? It uh, wasn't my tweet. I did a video, and then somebody listened to it, and then they tweeted what they thought yeah. I said. Uh, right. So I don't yes. remember your original quote, but uh, yes, of course. It's I mean, it's transplants a whole enterprise, and like, not that we're transplanting for money, but you're right. I mean, like, the whole thing works together, and if it's devalued, it would go down, you know, and, and especially with this recent data uh, that you don't got to do it. You know, it's funny that. Um, there's a few oncologists like yourself who are, you know, more and more critical of clinical trials, and um, but I'm not a trialist, so I really can't. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do participate in some clinical trials. I don't know. I think that that is like I don't know if people really recognize. It's clearly an ad hominem argument, which is like if somebody makes a point about agile, and then the counter argument is, but that person is not the PI of a study. It's not about. It's not a refutation. But that trial is still shitty, right? It's, oh, you can't, you're not respectable because you used it. That trial sucks. It sucks. They gave yeah. a crap because, I mean, like, and sometimes you got to call what it is. And, 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 you know. If they said, let's say this, you say Agile is wrong and here are the problems with Agile. And then they say, but you, your hair is too long. I think everyone will recognize that that counter argument is not germane. And it's also not germane that you're running trials or not running trials. The truth is, you participate in trials, you know a lot about trials. And the truth is, sometimes the person who's like writing the trial, you know, they're not always the best person to like analyze the trial. 
it's just a different skill set. Like, yeah. I always hear people say, like, oh, I'm a breast surgeon, so I really know the mammography literature. It's like, you know, I mean, you're like a breast surgeon, but you may not know the mammography literature really well because it's like a different skill set. And like reading the trial and thinking about it, it's like a different skill set. And like anybody who cares about the patients with that disease is entitled to comment. And like, if you don't like it, refute the central point or shut up. Yeah, Indiana Jones 4 was a horrible movie. Ruined, the tr ruined that. <laughs> I like that. That's a terrible movie. I, I, I'm not a director, and I'm sure it's very hard to direct and produce films, but like, and you're critical I'm, of this restaurant that uh, that where somebody suggested yes, saying that you're not going to be full, yeah, the portion like the... size is too small, and you're going to have to eat a burrito. And later. I'm not a world acclaimed chef, but like I still I still think my opinion might matter. You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a silly argument. I, I don't like I don't like it, and it's, it doesn't look good too on Twitter. It's like oh, silence all, and let me be like you know, or like what? So community oncologists they have no valuable input to add to. Uh, that's not true at all. Actually, some of the best doctors I know are community oncologists, oh, and, and the they, best one I know is yes, and they understand this literature better than you. Do actually, even but though the, you but wrote the flip the trial, side yeah. of the coin is okay. Why are you getting pushback at all, and why are some of the other commenters getting any pushback at all? Because if you really think about it, if Aaron Goodman is shouting into the void, and you're not persuasive, and you're somebody who doesn't know any better, and you're a long-haired hippie who plays Nirvana, and you don't know any better, if you if that's true, there's no need to refute you at all. I'm you a nothing. Could, I'm nothing. insignificant. You could be ignored, but you're not ignored. Actually, you get pushback, and the reason you're getting pushback is that actually, despite all the pushback, you are quite persuasive. And there's a whole generation of people who are persuasive, and the people who are pushing back, they're not pushing. They're pushing back probably because somebody in their office is like, "Oh, I listened to the plenary session. I saw this video. What do you think?" And then the attendant gets really pissed because they're like, "Why are you listening to that video?" So I guess what I want to say is that even though I'm sometimes annoyed when I see these things, I also just look at the numbers. I know how many people listened to the Shine plenary session and read the paper, and I know how many people listened to my video. And to be honest. I think we're crushing them no. because like, you know how many people, how many people who downloaded that article actually read it and how many people who clicked on my video actually watched it. The difference is I know because I got the stats. And so I think that they are losing the, the war of ideas. And this is like, that's why they're attacking. Yeah. They're, and I think smart, thoughtful people like many physicians are, they'll be like me five years ago where I listened to something you said and I started thinking, I'd be like, yeah, this, this is stupid. <laughs> like, and it, it kind of hits you at some point, at least for me. And I realized like, oh my God, we're doing all these awful things are not right and like you get to the point where like you don't want to be silent about it because you see everyone else going along with it and you feel the need to be that's what happened with me and uh you know and i think other people it's not like rocket science some it's of the not, things and that's the thing that's the thing what we, it's common sense it's not it, it is but somehow like it's common sense but i was blind to it i i was blind to it through fellowship and uh you know i'm not drinking your kool-aid it's it's no i was blind to it too. i though. was blind to it and, and it's not but it's not rocket science to understand these fundamental things and once you not a plug to your book. You read a few fundamental concepts, and every time I read a clinical trial, yeah, I'm not great with the statistics, and I'm trying to learn. I apply these few things. I'm like, okay, this study's BS. Yeah. You apply the same. It's it's not complicated. It is the control arm what you would have done. Yes. When they progressed, did they get what you would have yeah. given them, and did they measure the thing that matters? And like you do those that, three things, and it's like you half know the those three things. <laughs> it's like half you the are better interpret that, and that none of that's rocket science, and you know. Uh, and then you start realizing once you know once you realize it's not rocket science, and you still start seeing that these very smart people who are missing the point, you start getting angry. At least that's how it's been for me. And I, that, I was blind to yeah. it too. I remember like when I was a uh, the first I remember the first rotation I was on as a fellow was like GI oncology, and I was like in this room. And to be honest, I didn't I, had, I didn't know what progression free survival was. I didn't know what a response rate was, and I don't know what half these drugs are. And I was kind of feeling overwhelmed, like a first year fellow, which is like I feel like a dummy because I don't know any of this stuff. And there's always these people in oncology who are like, oh, especially where I trained, they're like, oh, I'm a full oncologist from Brazil or Ireland, and I'm like, okay, that person knows a lot. And, and there's also some people who have been like wanting to be an oncologist from when they were 12 and they know a lot, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I was like, dude, I don't know anything. And then 
weird. I was in clinic, and there's somebody with like I don't know some GI malignancy, and it was just kind of. And we're gonna have to wrap up so we can go to our next thing, um, <laughs> which is not gonna be educational. But anyway, uh, so like they had this cancer that was just like slowly ticking along, slowly getting like worse, worse. And then one day they crossed that magic 120% progression threshold, and the doctor said they progressed. And we went in the room and we changed therapy. And I remember just getting struck with just a very simple question, which was, this person has been on this therapy for so long, and the tumor has been getting bigger on the therapy. Now it's crossed this Rubicon, this line in the sand, 120, and we're going to switch. Why did we wait until this moment to switch? Why don't we wait to a later moment? Or why do we need it sooner? And that one question, you know, to this day, there is no answer. But now at least I, I know how much, I, like, it, it, it really pushed me into, like, looking at all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. It's kind of a mystery. Um, and, and of course, the answer is there's a lot of arbitrary things that you don't take for granted. And when you're new to a field, I definitely think this is true, and actually one of the downsides to like our training process, which is I do think that in science, great scientific thinking happens in your late 20s. Like That's when you're most creative and your mind is the best. And by yeah, the time you get to art, hell. we are over the <laughs> hill. I mean, it's been a long time since I've had an original idea. <laughs> Really, I'm like, I'm like waiting. Now you for, just repeat the same stuff over dude, and over. Dude, I'm saying the same shit for a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, like we're like the we're like we're like done making new songs. Yeah, I've listened enough of your stuff for you. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah, but I know, right? right? I, know, I know, like, like I'm the Stones, man. The, I'm I'm just playing the hits, man. Yeah. Like I don't got no new material. I got no new material. Okay, so it feels that way. Um, we we train too long, but I do think there's a sweet spot where you you look at a field you you don't know anything about. You start to ask basic questions. You might see some things that people who have been in the field for longer don't see. And that's like the moment where you can be critical. And maybe like that, the sweet spot is where like Monty is right now in his life, you know, because he's a little younger than us. Um, and that's a good place. And then to be honest, the nice thing about academic medicine is, and I'm guilty of this too, which is that, you know, there's something else that I get interested in that I don't know much about. And I start reading about it. And, uh, you know, those are all those things that we're not allowed to talk about. But, I, you know, I get interested I, in other things. Let's talk about code. If no, you no, I got I nothing to say. But, 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 like, for instance, like, I didn't know anything about schools, but then I read more papers about schools in the last year, maybe even on, than oncology. Because, like, I was like, I didn't know that would be something I'd be interested in. But, you know, then you learn some things. And, um, I don't know, the nice thing about medicine is we, you know, when I'm on, every time I'm on service, I learn about a disease I didn't even know about. You know, it's hard to admit, but there's, all like, still diseases that I don't know everything about. And, uh... Um, and I do think every once in a while I learn something about a trial I didn't know before, and um, that's fun. That's exciting. Yeah. No. Where do you still learn? That's the last I, question. I still learn I, 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 on, on service and from my patients. I still, to this day, because I, I don't read as many te – I don't read textbooks really anymore, um, but I still, They're to boring. this day, for patients, even for diseases I've seen quite a bit, usually for every new consult or for a few patients on the service every week – I will even up-to-date it as a good start, and I will do a little bit of a dive to either refresh or learn something new. I make it – that is in my – like just like your to-do list of how to keep up with the literature, that is my to-do list of how to keep up with uh, malignant hematology. And it's enjoyable. I mean I like – I'm lucky that the, I find the diseases I treat very fascinating. Uh, and right, there's a never-ending uh, – I don't know if I'm going to move on to schools, but yeah, so I think <laughs> I'll leave the school yeah. policy to, to you. <laughs> I'll tell you over Keep dinner. Open, I'll tell you over yeah. dinner some other things I'm uh, looking at that oh, are even beyond. Okay, I can't, well, say I can't wait. I can't say that now. No. But you know, I guess I would say that uh, my closing thought is that, you know, when I came up in oncology, the pinnacle was the JCO, and uh, I think it was like when I was a fellow it was the first time I published in the JCO and JCO in New England, 
And when I was a fellow, it was the first time I published in New England Journal, a paper on comparative effectiveness in oncology and then a paper on drug dosing and JCO. And that was the pinnacle because that was the place that- It's all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all downhill. <laughs> but to me, that was the pinnacle because that was like, if you wanted oncologists to read something or to think about yeah, something- the JCO. Or New England, those are the two places. But now, mm. a lot has changed, my friend, in 10 years. And now, if you want oncologists to listen to something and think about something, the places are YouTube, Twitter, podcasts, not just this one, but other podcasts that are really good that we both listen to, um, and uh, also the journals. They still have some hold, but they don't have the hold they used to, and these other things are taking off. And I think that the people who are like running the show, they're really missing it. Like ASCO is totally missed it. They are so wedded to their papers and they're like, and I, have you ever listened to an ASCO podcast? They're like, you no. you, you talk about putting the kids no, to sleep. No, I only you put, keep you up yourself. with ASCO, Onk Live. <laughs> uh. Well, you know, that's another example. All these predatory journals, they put out the worst content on earth. Um, now we've well, got- someone, I mean, I agree. It is the worst content. Yeah. Some, I mean, they do it though. There must be, I don't know. There's well, clearly no, no. pharmaceuticals are benefiting. Yeah, no, yeah, but, yeah. but maybe this is the argument. Maybe this is pharmaceutical companies got so much cash, and <laughs> and, and there's and, and then the comp and then the these like predatory journals tell them, give me this cash. We have an oncology audience. The pharmaceutical company, like like the federal government, if you give somebody so much cash, they don't know how to spend it. They're not going to use it wisely. Sometimes they just waste it. They're just like, oh shoot, let's have another myeloma week. This is oh, we we went a whole week without a myeloma summit. Let's have a myeloma summit the and let's Q get on myeloma summit and let's do these like videos that nobody watches. And they're always like, it's like, oh, we interview With the blue screen. Yeah, the blue screen in the back, and it's like we interview. Yeah, somebody. they're not in the Nirvana T-shirt no. like you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing a Nirvana shirt. And then they're like, um, we're like, we interviewed the PI about, uh, we interviewed some rando doc about Majestic. Go. And then they're like, and then, you know, the people like, they're like, I don't know, they're not talking casually. They're always like, Majestic is a randomized phase two triple blind study of 642 people. You know, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's like so structured. I'm like, this is so boring. People want what I want when I listen. So I used to not listen to podcasts or any of that stuff, but I do now a lot. People mm. want honest content with original thinking regarding around it. Like that's, yes, I that's could read the, the paper and you could read it to me. You want someone, and maybe you'll disagree with that, yes. but you want their original thinking on the content and that will make you think differently about it, whether you disagree or not. That's what I, I, I want. That's what I want. Yeah. And they got to speak to convey information. Yes. And you know, <laughs> you know, it's okay to be a little funny, you know, and you know, you know, well, you got to be nice. You, know, you got to be nice. <laughs> Well, one of the fragile trialists. You know? <laughs> yeah, of course. They're the they're like an endangered species. They're so delicate. Um, well, I guess we did a thing. It's good. Been, it's been in good. Person's chatting. better. Of course, it's better. You know, for a while when I started the podcast, I only interviewed in person. I had I got David Steensma in my office. I got Cliff Huddis from ASCO in my office, um, and they were great. They were great dialogues. Then the then. You know, yeah, Zoom uh, not as good. No, nothing. I can't think of a single thing in life that's better on Zoom. Ah. Uh, you know, some of those mandatory meetings I'm required to go oh, to. Oh, yeah, because you can tune At out. least I can get my epic work done. Don't listen to you today, so. <laughs> yeah, at least you can. Get a run-in while. <laughs> get a run-in and go to the restroom. Yep. <laughs> and on that positive yes, note. Just mute. Yeah. On that positive note, I'm here, Aaron Goodman, UC San Diego, and uh, we'll put this out on the feed. 
And uh, stay tuned for more Plenary Session. We'll be back, I think, in a future episode with uh, another installment of Malignant Book Club. I've got it on my on the cutting room floor. We're going to put it out. Are you going to do the, uh, that study that like combined all the novel agents in DLBCL? I'm, I'm waiting going on to. that. Oh, you're waiting for oh, that? Oh, I've been eagerly waiting on that one. Uh, I feel like the um, I want to mail the authors a box of Kleenex before. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> waiting I'm gonna, for I'm gonna, I'm gonna Is that one done or no? No, I haven't recorded it yet. Oh. But I was eagerly awaiting. I was I was taking a, I was I just wanted to be compassionate. Okay. It's going to be compassionate, okay. but that's a, that's a problematic paper. So on that positive note, thank you so much, Dr. Goodman. Thank you.